I'm going to cheat. I'm going to start at verse 17 through verse 20. It says, So he, Paul, was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, What would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. May God bless this reading of his word. So there we have it. Paul is a cheater. His word, not mine. Thank you, Paul, for reading that uh, text. And I hope you'll notice in that text that the word strange or a derivation of it is used two times. And that's the reason why we've chosen that as our text for this morning. Let me just say I appreciate so very much all of you being here this morning. I appreciate Izzy's very well thought out and expressed prayer. I appreciate our elders for the time that they've spent in conference calls and deliberating with one another about what to do in regards to our corporate assemblies. And I know that they had our best interest in mind all during that time, and they've come up with a plan that I think is is workable. Uh, with that, let me say I, we welcome all of you who are here this morning. I'm delighted that we have this kind of crowd, and uh, considering, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 7.26, considering the present distress... Uh, that you're here this morning to the thousands joining us online. <laughs> we, we welcome you. As, that's preacher count, by the way. Uh, yeah, I can even count cyberspace, man. Uh, we're, we're glad that you're, you're joining us online as well. And, and we are grateful for any opportunity to be able to come here and, and worship. Uh, students, spring break, yay. Can't go anywhere, bummer. I know at a time like this, uh, we we tend to want to draw even closer together and hug necks and shake hands, but you might want to reconsider that at least for uh, a brief amount of time. I know that I'm not going to be at the back this morning for that reason. Me and I were talking the other day about we probably, I don't know how many hands we shake. We don't shake everybody's hand when we stand in the back, but we do shake several hundred, and so uh, we decided that we weren't going to to try to risk that at least for the next week or so. Glad you're here this morning. Uh, John's right. This is just a wonderful time to be together. We're just, we're family, and it's just a, a wonderful time to be able to come here and praise God. Sing it with me, will you? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise all in all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, another song that we sing, and we sang that, oh, I don't know, 12 minutes ago, 
that uh, has some lyrics in it that are relevant to our topic this morning. And I'll remind you, even though we sang this song recently, I appreciate John leading that song, by the way. There, there's a, one of the verses that say, I love to tell the story because those who know it best are hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. That's, I would render an amen to that. The older I get, the more I, I appreciate God's word, the proclamation of it, our opportunity and privilege to be able to open our Bibles anytime we want to and to study God's eternal word. So I, I want us to think about that, and I want you to do something that's a little bit strange this morning, and, and I'm using that word quite deliberately. I want for the duration, the span of this lesson, if you will, to pretend that you've never heard a gospel sermon. Pretend that this is the first time you've ever heard the gospel ever being proclaimed. And try to listen to what we're going to be talking about and discussing for the next few minutes through, through novice ears. You know, you've, you've never heard the message proclaimed. And, and think about how strange it would be to, on the giving end of that, to share the good news with someone and to know that they'd never heard it before. I mean, they'd, they'd not heard any of it. I mean, not how God created the universe and how he painted the sky with stars. You'd not heard about how, anything about how that man spoiled the, the paradise of Eden by his disobedience and then nothing about how that Jesus was born of a virgin and how he lived and died for the sins of lost humanity. You'd never heard that story before. You might also want to think parenthetically of the fact that there are a lot of people who are occupying this planet right now who really have it. They've never heard even the name Jesus. But it's because of our familiarity, I think, sometimes with Christianity that we tend to take it for granted. And it can easily lose its thrill and its luster if we're not very careful. Oh, I've heard that story. I've heard it over and over again. I've heard it dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of times. Consider some things, if you will, for just a moment that may make Christianity strange if you've never heard it before. In the first place, I submit, it places an emphasis upon the unseen. That is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18. We're going to be noticing in just a moment. But Paul mentions the fact that, that, that we place the emphasis in Christianity upon that which we cannot see. Not only a, a God that we've never seen with a natural eye, but also we're, we're looking forward to heaven, a place that we've never seen. A place that the Bible describes with, with some d detail, but still the fact remains that we've never experienced that with any of our senses. And, and yet we conversely, we live in a world where you have to be able to, you know, see and hear and touch and, and weigh something in order to be able to take it seriously. We want some tangible evidence that, that this property or that this thing actually exists. And the reality is very few people can think well concerning that which is abstract. And I'm one of those people. You know, I took Philosophy 101 as, my, as a, I think, a sophomore in college. And I can remember hearing some of the wild and crazy ideas of if you can't see something, that the moment you, you turn, avert your eyes away from it, then it goes out of existence. And I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, those kinds of ideas were just far into my thinking. And so we have a difficulty thinking about that which is abstract. And if we can't see it through a telescope, if we can't put it on a slide and examine it under a microscope, it's hard for many of us to take it very seriously. And yet here's the strange part. The gospel does just that. By the way, that in no way weakens its credibility. I'll remind you that faith is defined for us in Hebrews 11 verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. 
Most of what we believe and accept is true are things that we've never experienced ourselves with our own senses. For example, I believe that Abraham Lincoln once existed, that he was the 16th president of the United States. I believe that the Grand Canyon is where people say it is, although I've never, I've never experienced, I've never seen either that man or that place with my own eyes. I believe that all we know in the physical universe is comprised of atoms, although I have never personally seen the world at the atomic or the subatomic levels, and neither have you. But these are things that we, that we know are true, because of cred- credible evidence and because of, of accumulated evidence. And, and we also recognize that most of the things that we, that we hold as true in our lives are things that we've never actually seen ourselves. So it's an understatement to say that the Bible, the Bible deals primarily with God. It's a book about God. It's a, a book from God to, to man, whom the Bible readily admits, as we noted a moment ago, that no one has ever seen with the natural eye. And yet when Paul converted to Christianity, he had never certainly seen God. But, but he was able to say in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, For this reason I suffer these things. By implication, Paul is saying, I'm suffering because of a God you can't see. Nevertheless, he said, I am not ashamed, for I, watch this, know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed into him against that day. Paul says the fact that he can't see God, the fact that there, there is a God, is the sum and substance of the Christian's faith. And the fact that I can't see him with a natural eye does not diminish my faith. It does not weaken it one iota. The Bible also deals with, with heaven and hell and love and goodness and moral purity. And yet none of those things have physical properties. They cannot be observed with the natural eye. Now, you might be able to see the fruit of some of these properties, but you can't see the thing itself. So the very essence of Christianity is based upon a belief in that which is unseen. Again, I remind you of the definition of faith in Hebrews 11 and verse 1, the evidence of things not seen. And then you skip down a few verses to verse 6. And there the writer tells us, if any man would come to God, if, if any man would come to God, he must first believe that he is, that is, he, he exists, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek after him. So the essence of the foundation of our Christian faith is a belief in a God that we have not seen. So the question that I have for you this morning is, can you, do you truly believe in the unseen world? Are you aware that what we know and what we experience in this life is not all there is? That all of life does not end at the grave. Now, we've been talking about worldviews for the last few weeks, or at least alluding to that topic. And I think that you appreciate already the fact that that's the central thing that separates us from most of the people in the world. That is, we do believe that there is a God. We do believe that he sent his son to die for us, that he died upon Calvary's cross for the sins of lost humanity. And and we believe in the unseen world. In fact, what we experience in this world is just the tip of the cosmic and the metaphysical iceberg, as it were. If you cannot believe in the unseen, then Christianity isn't very meaningful to you. And that's both sad and strange. Here's another thing that we need to consider. In the awareness of the reality of sin, God wishes to redeem and not merely judge mankind. And that's strange. Let me explain why. 
The Bible affirms over and over again that every one of us will stand someday accountable unto God. Romans 14, 12, every man will give an account of himself before God was Paul's inspired affirmation. And then in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 10, he said, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that we may receive the things done in our bodies according to what we've done, whether it be good or bad. Every one of us, without exception, Paul says, is someday going to stand accountable to the God of the universe. But the Bible also affirms that all of us, of an accountable age at least, Stand in need of the redeeming blood of Jesus. And that's because Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If we say that we have no sin, we make him a liar and his truth is not in us. 1 John 1 verses 8 and also in verse 10. Peter's thesis statement in that great Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, chapter 2 was this. Therefore, he said, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and and Christ. God is interested in our redemption. We're going to be talking about this in just a moment, but, but it's strange that he isn't just interested in punishing us for our many sins, for our transgressions. He has actively worked for a long, long time to make sure that every one of us has an opportunity through the gospel to be able to be redeemed, to be reconciled to God's side. And, and that's strange if you think about it from that perspective. You see, the natural way, as Peter was preaching that sermon on Pentecost and telling that group of people, of constituted of thousands of people, you are the ones responsible for killing the Son of God. You know, the natural way for God to react to that rejection from a human perspective is to be bitter and angry and vengeful. And yet the golden text of the Bible says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. In 2 Peter 3, verse 9, Peter says, For the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. But what's this? He is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's 2 Peter 3, verse 9. God would have all men to be saved and come into a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 so affirms. God wants not only to be our judge, he wants to be, he wants to be our redeemer. And into the sobering awareness of the reality and the weight of our sin. That's strange. Thirdly, God, in order to make his desire and his design for man's salvation clear, sent his son to save us. John begins his gospel account like this. In the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was with God and the word was God. Literally, the word was deity. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, it was the only way that God could really communicate with mortal man and make his plan for salvation known and understood and appreciated. That is, that God would take on flesh and walk among us. There are a couple of times in the year when the world at least gives a passing nod to that reality. But we as God's people spend at least every first day of the week, and hopefully sometime every day of the week, thinking about the wonder of God's incarnation, that he made the conscious choice to come and to suffer the way we suffer, to experience what we experience, and then to experience what most of us have have never and will never experience, and that is a heinous death upon the cross. Why would God do that? 
other than his magnanimous love for lost mankind. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 and verse 8 so affirms. It was necessary then in the mind of God for for deity to become flesh and to walk in our shoes and experience what we've experienced. We have not a high priest that cannot be touched by the feelings of our infirmities, but was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4 and verse 15 says, I mentioned a few weeks ago the fact that I, for years, liked to listen to Paul Harvey. He would have a 15-minute broadcast during uh, the noon hour, and then later in the day he would have a, for what it's worth, department and a, uh, the rest of the story broadcast that would last for about five minutes. Every year around Christmas, he would always tell the story about the old man and the birds. And I'm going to boil that down for you this morning, but I believe it's an appropriate illustration of the point that I'm trying to make. Here was a man who had no regard for God and no regard for religion, despite the fact that his wife was a faithful Christian. And his major hang-up was a cognitive one. Why would God leave the grandeur and the glory of heaven, if he did, and take on the form of a man and suffer and die the most awful death that you could imagine nailed to a rugged cross. Why would he do that? And he could never, he could never get his mind wrapped around that reality, so he was, never, he was never a believer. One night, close to Christmas, his, his wife walked the short way down to the church building to sing carols with the, with the other members there. And it was cold that night. The man, of course, stayed at home, sitting next to his window, trying to stay concentrated on the book he was reading. Every now and then he would glance out the window to see if his wife was returning home. And one time as he glanced out the window, he saw the snow began to fall. And it began to fall more rapidly. And then it began to to be bigger flakes, big goose down feather flakes were falling. And and as he looked out the window and he he watched the beauty of that that falling snow, he noticed some, some birds, some sparrows that were out scratching around on the ground trying to find something to eat. And then as he was fascinated by that scene, he began to watch more closely as the snow began to settle on the the wings of those birds. And it got heavier and heavier. And the man realized, being a compassionate fellow, that eventually that snow was going to encase those birds and they would not be able to fly away. They would die. They would freeze there. So he decided, I don't have anything else to do. I'm going to do what I can to save those birds. He went out and he opened the two huge doors of the barn. He, he put a light on the inside so that the birds could see the illuminated door of the barn. And then he, he tried as best he could to get behind the birds and to try to, to scare them into the barn. And he took off his hat and he waved it behind them and he, he did all that he could. And of course, you can imagine what the reaction of those wild birds was. They began to scatter in every direction. And he thought, what in the world can I do to get those birds in the barn? And then he came up with this thought. If I could just for a moment become a bird. If I could become one of them, then I wouldn't be scary to them. And they would accept my leadership and I could... I could lead them to safety. And it was for the first time in his life that he thought, you know, that's exactly what God did. He became one of us so that we would follow him, so that we would not see him in his natural form and be frightened, overwhelmed, but that we would see this is, in fact, God made flesh. And Romans 5, 8, as we mentioned a moment ago, affirms that it was even while we were yet sinners 
that Christ performed this redemptive work for us, that he died for us. Here's another strange thing about Christianity, and that is the recognition of the worth of an individual soul. We're living in a world right now that is occupied by almost 8 billion people. Isn't that amazing? And what's even more amazing, if you'll look at the actuarial tables to see how recently it was that we were only at 4 billion. We have doubled the world's population in just a short while. And then they project how quickly that it's going to double again. It's, it's kind of frightening, especially if you've already seen the traffic on Atlanta Highway. You know what I'm talking about. You know, we live in a world of hustle and bustle and hurry and scurry, and we forget sometimes to appreciate the worth of the individual, don't we? We think in terms of the mass of humanity. But you know what? Any group, even the world's population, is comprised of people, of individuals. And every one of us has an eternal soul that will live somewhere either with God or in the other place. And and, and it seems that the more we bring humanity as a mass into sightful awareness, the less we are aware of humans as individuals. I think we may become like Lucy Van Pelt, who said, I love mankind, it's men I hate. And we can do that if we're not careful. We can say, oh, I love the whole world, I love everybody in it, but just not that guy. And so what we have to do is to take the vision that God has of this world and the people who occupy this world and to appreciate literally the worth of the individual soul. Or maybe you feel like the man who answered the phone, you know, from a deep sleep at midnight and he picked up the receiver and the first thing he said out of his mouth was, you've got the wrong idiot, you number. And and that's where we are. We can easily become a number in this computerized world in which we live. And we may get to feeling like we and everyone else are just another cog in the machine of humanity. But our Lord brings it all into proper perspective when he says, For what shall a man profit if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Matthew sixteen twenty six. Please appreciate that that verse is teaching us a great number of things, and all of them are important. But the one thing I want us to notice and focus on this morning is that Jesus is talking about the worth of an individual soul. One person, the whole world and all the wealth in the world and all the gold in Fort Knox piled up next to to the one individual soul is not worth your soul or mine. And Jesus is trying to bring his disciples into that awareness So that they will treat their souls with that kind of care and that kind of caution. And that each of us living today 2,000 years later will also be able to look at ourselves as people who have been made in the image of God. Who have an eternal soul that will live on somewhere. But also everybody in Montgomery has a soul just like mine. That's just as valuable as mine. And everybody in Alabama and everybody in this country and everybody in this world has a soul. And and, and God says one of the great quests of being a Christian, and, and especially as a Christian who's concerned about soul winning, is to appreciate that spiritual reality. It may, we may tend to take life for granted. We may get into the rut of life, to the routine of life, and, and we assume that what is today will be tomorrow, and we may get to feeling the same way about people. We start taking them for granted as well. But don't you know the Lord doesn't? 
He never has. He has always appreciated the worth of the individual soul. Let me give you one quick biblical example of that, and we're going to move on. We're almost through. That beautiful 15th chapter of the book of Luke. If you haven't read that chapter lately, since we're not having services tonight, think of this as extra reading credit. If you haven't read Luke 15 recently, I would encourage you to do that before the day is over. There are three powerful stories in Luke 15. This is not a spoiler alert. You've read the chapter and you know what's in it. And there's three items or persons that are mentioned in that story that had one thing in common. They were lost. There was a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost boy. The coin, you think about it, was inanimate. It couldn't do anything at all about its lost state. It required a woman sweeping the house, trying to find that coin. Because a coin, obviously having no consciousness, isn't concerned about the reality of its lostness. And it's it's not going to do anything about trying to be found. The sheep itself could not find its way back home to the fold. Because we all know, even without being shepherds, that sheep are basically directionless. That's why sheep are constantly being led in the Bible, and they are in real life too, or in in our lives as well. That is, they have to be led, or else they'll get lost, and they won't find their way back to the fold. But there's there's a contrast in those three stories. The Bible points out with a great deal of care that the boy was different than the coin and the sheep. He was conscious and aware of what he was doing. He deliberately left home, left the provisions and the love and the care of his father's house, and he went to the far country of sin. He was stubborn. He was self-willed. He left home of his own volition. And if you miss that, I think you've missed a great part of what that parable of the prodigal son is all about. But watch this. None of those things decrease the love and the concern of the owner's one iota. The shepherd still still loved the sheep and wanted it back. The woman still wanted to find the coin. And the father we know in that powerful story looked daily, scanning the horizon, looking for, hoping for, and praying for the return of his beloved son. I'm just saying all of these Bible passages make us aware, or at least they should, of how important the individual soul is to the mind and the heart of God. Why are we important to God? There's no other explanation than to say, because he loves us. Even when we're in the far country, he loves us. And isn't that strange? In God's eyes, we, and I mean each one of us, is worth the death of his only son. And let me ask you, would you believe that if you'd never heard it before? Fifth, it offers for man forgiveness rather than punishment. We've touched on this, but let me say another word about it before we, before we get through. While we know in our hearts, and we also know because of the revelation of God's will in Scripture, that we all deserve punishment for our many sins, God offers the, the olive branch of redemption and salvation. That's what the gospel message is all about. That's essentially the message of the Bible. It really is, a, a, if, you, if you want to think about it that way, a, a love letter from God to man. It, it's, it's, it almost begins with, I miss you and I want you back. You know, one of those kinds of messages. God, God loves us, as we just saw in the last point. But, but that means that he wants to see us reconcile. That literally means to make friends again. It, it's easy to forgive when you've not been injured. 
But when you have been injured, when someone has hurt you, either psychologically or even physically, we want to seek retribution and revenge. And and once we have attained those, only then are we willing to talk about forgiveness. And yet God willingly and fully forgives when we seek it. Isaiah prophesied the long ago, Isaiah 118, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 12, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. You see, according to the first gospel sermon in the Acts, the second chapter that we referenced earlier, God offers us through the redeeming sacrifice of his son, the remission of every one of our sins. I learned a long time ago that that word remission is very special and very important. It literally means to take up and lead away. It invokes the imagery of maybe a western, you know, where a cowboy has gotten off his horse and he takes it to the stable and he's grabs it by the bridle and, and the reins and he leads it away. And the, and the idea, spiritually speaking, is that's what God will do with our sins if we appropriate his forgiveness. He will take those sins, every single one of them, and lead them away so that you never see them and you never have to think about them anymore because you're not going to be charged with them. You will no longer be accountable for those sins that the blood of Jesus Christ has covered. And God willingly offers us all of that through his Son. And isn't that strange? Finally, Christianity offers faith, hope, and love. And that's strange. It offers us faith to make us strong, and love to make us good, and hope to make us happy. And when we open our New Testaments, we learn that in the first century, with those three things, with faith, hope, and love, servants, slaves, I mean, became greater than their masters. Because they knew and loved and obeyed the great God of heaven and earth. And in doing so, they became children of the king. It didn't matter what they were in in social, secular life. They were children of the king. By By virtue of their changed relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I guess the very best news of all is that these things are still available to anyone. Even today. But only on God's terms. In a moment, if you... Choose to respond to the gospel invitation. We encourage you, if you're not a child of God, to make that initial step to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Make the decision that you're going to turn your back on sin. Confess Jesus as God's son. We'll be delighted to baptize you into Christ this morning. This will be the greatest day of your life. The world is in turmoil, but this will be the greatest day of your life if you decide to follow Jesus on March 15, 2020. A wise person once said, there are three things that money cannot buy. The love of a virtuous woman, the smile on the lips of a baby, and life with God in eternity. And yet God offers us all of those things and more through his son. That's the strange thing about the good news that we've been talking about this morning. And here's the strangest. It's true. Every single word of it. And so I ask you, what does Christianity mean to you this morning? That question lies before every one of us, and we don't have an unlimited amount of time to decide what our response to God's wonderful grace will be. That's why we invite you to come while we stand and while we sing.